Chapter 81 The Pequod Meets the Virgin The predestinated day arrived, and we duly met the Shitjungfrau, Derek Devere, master of the Bremen. At one time the greatest whaling people in the world, the Dutch and the Germans, are now among the least. But here and there, at very wide intervals of latitude and longitude, you still occasionally meet with their flag in the Pacific. For some reasons, the Jungfrau seemed quite eager to pay her respects. While yet some distance from the Pequod, she rounded to, and dropping a boat, her captain was impelled towards us, impatiently standing in the bows instead of the stern. "'What has he in his hand there?' cried Starbuck, pointing to something wavingly held by the German. "'Impossible! A lamp feeder!' "'Not that,' said Stubb. "'No, no, it's a coffee pot, Mr. Starbuck. He's come off to make us our coffee.' It's the Yarman. Don't you see that big tin can there alongside him? That's his boiling water. Oh, he's all right. It's the Yarman. Go along with you, cried Flask. It's a lamp feeder and an oil can. He's out of oil and he's come a-begging. However curious it may seem for an oil ship to be borrowing oil on whale grounds, and however much it may invertedly contradict the old proverb about carrying coals to Newcastle, yet sometimes such a thing really happens, and in the present case Captain Derek de Deer did indubitably conduct a lamp feeder, as Flass did declare. As he mounted the deck, Ahab abruptly accosted him, without at all heeding what he had in hand. But in his broken lingo, the German soon evinced the complete ignorance of the white whale, immediately turning the conversation to his lamp feeder and oil can, with some remarks touching his having to turn into a hammock at night in profound darkness, at last drop of Bremen oil being gone, and not a single flying fish yet captured to supply the deficiency, concluding by hinting that his ship was indeed what in the fishery is technically called a clean one, that is, an empty one, while deserving the name Jungfrau, or the Virgin. His necessities supplied, Derek departed, but he had not gained his ship's side when whales were almost simultaneously raised from the masthead of both vessels, and so eager for the chase was Derek that without pausing to put his oil can and lamp feeder abroad, he slew round his boat and made after the leviathan lamp feeders. Now, the game having risen to leeward, he and the other three German boats that soon followed him had considerably the start of the Pequod's keels. There were eight whales, an average pod. Aware of their danger, they were going all abreast with great speed straight before the wind, rubbing their flasks as closely as so many spans of horses in harness. They left a great wide wake, as though continually unrolling a great wide parchment upon the sea. Full in this rapid wake and many fathoms in the rear swam a huge, humped old bull, which by his comparatively slow progress, as well as by the unusual yellowish incrustations overgrowing him, seemed afflicted with the jaundice, or some other infirmity. Whether this whale belonged to the pod in advance seemed questionable, for it is not customary for such venerable leviathans to be at all social. Nevertheless, he stuck to their wake, though indeed their backwater must have retarded him, because the white bone or swell of his broad muzzle was dashed. Because the white bone or swell of his broad muzzle was a dashed one, like the swell formed when two hostile currents meet, his spout was short, slow, and laborious, coming forth with a choking sort of gush, and spending itself in torn shreds, followed by strange subterranean commotions in him, which seemed to have egress in his other buried extremities, causing the waters behind him to up-bubble. "'Who's got some paragoic?' 
said Stubb. He has the stomachache, I'm afraid, Lord. Think of having half an acre of stomachache. Adverse winds are holding mad. Christmas in him, boys. It's the first foul wind I ever threw to blow from astern. But look, did ever whale yaw so before? It must be he's lost his tiller. As an overlaid Indianman bearing down on the Hindostian coast, with a deck load of frightened horses, careens, berries, rolls, and walls her way, so did this old whale heave his aged bulk, and now and then partly turning over his cumbrous rib ends, expose the cause of his devious wake in the unnatural stump of his starboard fin. Whether he had lost his fin in battle or been born without it, it were hard to say. "'Only wait a bit, old chap. I'll give ye a sling for a wounded arm,' cried Cruel Flask, pointing to the whale lying near him. "'Mind ye don't sling thee with it,' cried Starbuck. "'Give way, or the German will have him.' With one intent to all the combined rival boats were pointed for this one fish, because not only was he the largest and therefore most vulnerable whale, but he was the nearest to them, and the other whales were going with such great velocity— moreover as to almost defy pursuit for the time. At this juncture, the Pequod's keel was shot by the three German boats last lowered, but for the great start he had, Derrick's boat still led the chase, though every moment neared by his foreign rivals. The only thing they feared was that from being already so nigh to his mark, he would be enabled to dart his iron before they could completely overtake and pass him. As for Derrick, he seemed quite confident that this would be the case, and occasionally, with a deriding gesture, took his lamb feeder at the other boats. "'The ungracious and ungrateful dog,' cried Starbuck. "'He mocks and dares me with the very poor box I filled for him not five minutes ago, and in his old intense whisper,' Give way, greyhounds, dog to it. I tell ye what it is, men, cried Stubb to his crew. It's against my religion to get mad, but I'd like to eat that villainous yarman. Pull, won't ye? And ye going to let that rascal beat ye? Do ye love brandy? A hog's head of brandy, then. To the best man, come. Why don't ye burst a blood vessel? Who's been dropping an anchor overboard? We don't budge an inch, we're becalmed. Halloo! Here's the grass growing in the boat's bottom, and by lord the mast there's building. This won't do, boys. Look at that yarman, the short and long of it, men. Will ye spit fire or not? Oh, see the suds he makes, cried Flask, dancing up and down. What a hump. Oh, I do pile on the beef, lays like a dog. Oh, my lads, do spring. Slapjacks and cohogs for supper. You know, my lads, baked clams and muffins. Oh, do, do spring. He's a hundred barreler. Don't lose him now. Don't. Oh, don't. See the armin. Oh, won't he pull? Ye duff, my lads. Such a sog. Such a sogger. Won't ye love sperm? There goes three thousand dollars, men. A bank. A whole bank. A bank of England. Oh, do, do, do. What's that yarman about now? At this moment, Derek was in the act of pitching his lamb feeder at the advancing boats, and also his oil can, perhaps with the double view of retarding his rival's way, and at the same time economically accelerating his own by the momentary impetuous of the backward toss. The unmannerly Dutch dogger cried Stubb, pull now! Men, like fifty thousand line of battleships, loads of red-haired devils, what do ye say, Teshtego? Are you the man to snap your spine in two and twenty pieces for the honor of old Gayhead? What do ye say? I say, pull like goddamn, cried the Indian. 
Fiercely but evenly incited by the taunts of the German, the Pequod's three boats now began ranging almost abreast, and, so disposed, momentarily neared him, in the fine, loose, chivalrous attitude of the headsman. When drawing near to his prey, the three mates stood up so proudly, occasionally backing the after-oarsman with an exhilarating cry of, there she slides now, hooray for the white ash breeze, down with the yarman, sail over him. But so decided an original start had Derek had that, spite all of their gallantry, he would prove the victor in this race. Had not a righteous judgment descended upon him in a crab which caught the blade of his midship's oarsman. While this clumsy lubber was striving to free his white ash, and while in consequence Derek's boat was nigh to capsize, he thundering away at his men in a mighty rage, there was a good time for Starbuck, Stub, and Flask. With a shout, they took a mortal start forwards, and slanting, ranged up on the German's quarters. An instant more, and all four boats were diagonally in the whale's immediate wake, while stretching from them on both sides was the foaming swell that he had made. It was a terrific, most pitiable and maddening sight. The whale was now going head out and sending his spout before him in a continual tormented jet, while his one poor fin beat its side in an agony of fright. Now to his hand, now to that, he yawned in his faltering flight, and still at every billow that he broke, he spasmodically sank in the sea and sideways rolled towards the sky his one beating fin. So have I seen a bird with clipped wings, making a frightened broken circles in the air, vainly striving to escape the practical hawks. But the bird has a voice, and with a plaintive cries will make known her fear. But the fear of this vast dumb brute of the sea was chained up and enchanted in him. He had no voice, save that choking respiration through his spiracle, and this made the sight of him unspeakably pitiable, while still, in his amazing bulk, portcullis jaw, and omnipotent tail, there was enough to appeal the stoutest man who was so pitied. Seeing now that but a very few moments more would give Pequod's boat the advantage, and rather than he be thus foiled of his game, Derek chose to hazard what to him must have seemed a most unusual long dart, ere the last chance would ever escape. But no sooner did his harpooner stand up for the stroke than all three tigers, Quigqueg, Tashtego, Degu, instinctively sprang to their feet, and standing in a diagonal row, simultaneously pointed their barbs and darted over the head of the German harpooner. Their three Nantucket irons entered the whale, blinding vapors of foam and white fire. The three boats, in the first fury of the whale's headlong rush, bumped the Germans aside with such force that both Derek and his baffled harpooner were spilled out and sailed over by all three flying keels. "'Don't be afraid, my butterboxes,' cried Stubb, casting a passing glance upon them. As he shot by, we'll be picked up presently, all right. I saw some sharks astern, St. Bernard's dog, you know. Relieve distressed travelers. Hurrah!' This is the way to sail now. Every keel a sunbeam. Hurrah. Here we go, like three tin kettles in the tail of a mad cougar. This puts me in mind fastening to an elephant in a tilbury. On a plane makes the wheel spokes fly. Boys, when you fasten to him that way, and there's danger of being pitched out too, when you strike a hill. Hurrah. This is the way a fellow feels when he's going to Davy Jones. All a rush down an endless inclined plane. Hurrah! This whale carries the everlasting mail. 
but the monster's run was a brief one. Giving a sudden gasp, he tumultuously sounded. With a grating rush, the three lines flew round the loggerhead with such a force as to gouge deep grooves in him, while so fearful were the harpooners that this rapid sounding would soon exhaust the lines, that using their dexterous might, they caught repeatedly smoking turns with a rope to hold on, till at last, owing to the perpendicular strain from the lead-line chocks of the boats, whence the three ropes went straight down into the blue, the gunwales of the bows were almost even with the water, while the three sterns tilted high in the air, and the whale soon ceasing to sound, for some time they remained in that attitude, fearful of expending more line through the position was a little ticklish. But though the boats had been taken down and lost in this way, yet it was this holding on, as it is called, the hooking up of the sharp barbs of that live flesh from his back. This is that often torments the leviathan into soon rising again to meet the sharp lance of his foes. Yet not to speak of the peril of the thing, it is to be doubted whether this course is always the best." for it is but reasonable to presume that the longer the stricken whale stays under water, the more he is exhausted, because owing to the enormous surface of him in a full-grown sperm whale something less than 2,000 square feet, the pressure of the water is immense. We all know what an astonishing atmospheric weight we ourselves stand up under, even here above ground in the air. How vast, then, the burden of the whale bearing on his back a column of 200 fathom of the ocean." it must at least equal the weight of 50 atmospheres. One whaleman had estimated it at the weight of 20 line of battleships, and with all their guns and stores and men aboard. As the three boats lay there on the gently rolling sea, gazing down in the eternal blue noon, and as not the single groan or cry of any sort, nay, not so much as a ripple or bubble came up from the depths, what landsman would have thought that beneath all that silence and placidity the utmost monster of the sea was writhing and retching in agony? Not eight inches of perpendicular rope were visible at the bows. Seems incredible that by three such thin threads the great leviathan was suspended like the big weight to an eight-day clock. Suspended? And to what? To three bits of board. Is the creature of whom it was once so triumphantly said, Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergon. He esteemeth iron as a straw. The arrow cannot make him flee, dart, as counted as stubble. He lengthen at the shaking of the spear. This the creature, this he. Oh, that unfulfillments should follow the prophet. For the strength of a thousand thighs in his tail, Leviathan had run his head under the mountain of the sea to hide him from the Pequod's fish spears. In that sloping afternoon sunlight, the shadows that the three boats bent down must have been long enough and broad enough to shade half Xerxes' armies. Who can tell how appalling to the wounded whale must have been such a huge phantom's fitting over his head? Stand by, men, he stirs, cried Starbuck, as the three lines suddenly vibrated in the water, distinctly conducting upwards towards him as the magnetic wires, the life and death throbs of the whale, and so that every oarsman felt them in his seat. The next moment, relieved in great part from the downward strain as the bows, the boats gave a sudden bounce upwards, as a small ice-field will, when a dense herd of white bears are scared from the sea. "'Haul in, haul in,' cried Starbuck again. "'He's rising.' 
the lines of which hardly an instant before, not one hand's breadth could have been gained, were now in long, quick foils, flung back all dripping into the boats, and soon the whale broke water within two ships' length of the hunters. His motions plainly denoted his extreme exhaustion. In most land animals, there are certain valves or floodgates in many of their veins, whereby, when wounded, the blood is in some degree at least instantly shut off in certain directions. Not so with the whale. Not one of those peculiarities it is to have an entire non-valvular structure of the blood vessels, so that when pierced even by so small a point as the harpoon, a deadly drain is at once begun upon his whole arterial system. And when this is heightened by the extraordinary pressure of the water at great distance below the surface, his life may be said to pour from him in incessant streams. Yet so vast is the quantity of blood in him, and so distant and numerous its interior fountains, that he will keep thus bleeding and bleeding for a considerable period, even in a drought of a river will flow, whose source is in the well springs of the far-off and undiscernible hills." Even now, when the boat pulled upon this whale and perilously drove over the swaying flukes, and the lances were darted into him, they were followed by the steady jets from the new-made wound, which kept continually playing, while the natural spout hole in his head was only at intervals, however rapid, sending its frightened moisture into the air. From this last vent no blood came, yet because no vital part of him had thus been struck. His life, as they significantly call it, was untouched. As the boats now more closely surrounded him, the whole upper part of his form, with much of it that is ordinarily submerged, was plainly revealed. His eyes, or rather the places where his eyes had been, were beheld. As strange misgrown masses gather in the knot-holes of the novice oak when prostrate, so from the points which the whale's eyes had occupied now protrude blind bulbs, horribly pitiable to see. But pity there was none. For all his old age, and his old arm, and his blind eye, he must die the death and be murdered, in order to light the gay bridles and other merry-makings of men, and also to illuminate the solemn churches that preach unconditional inoffensiveness by all to all. Still rolling in his blood at last, he partially disclosed a strangely discolored bunch of protuberance the size of a bushel, low down on the flank. A nice spot, cried Flask. Let me just pick him once there. Avast, cried Starbuck. There's no need for that. But humane Starbuck was too late. At the instant of the dart, an ulcerous jet shot from the cruel wound, and goaded by it into more than sufferable anguish. The whale, now spouting thick blood with swift fury, blindly darted at the craft, bespattering them and their gory crews all over showered in gore, capsizing Flask's boat and marring the bows. It was his death-stroke, for, by this time, so spent was he, by loss of blood that he helplessly rolled away from the wreck he had made, lay panting on his side, impotently flapped with this stubbed fin, and then over and over slowly revolved like a waning world, turned up the white sheets of his belly, lay like a log, and died. It was most piteous, that last expiring spout, and when, by unseen hands, the water is gradually drawn off from some mighty fountain, and with half-stifled melancholy, gurglings the spraying column lowered and lowers to the ground, so the long, dying spout of the whale. 
So while the crews were awaiting the arrival of the ship, the body showed symptoms of sinking and its treasures unrifled. Immediately, by Starbuck's order, lines were secured to all the points, so that ere long every boat was a buoy, the sunken whale being suspended a few inches beneath them by the cords. By very heedful management when the ship drew nigh, the whale was transferred to her side, and was strongly secured there by the stiffest fluke chains, for it was plain that unless artificially upheld the body, would one sink to the bottom. It was so chanced that almost upon first cutting into him with the spade and entire length of a coroneted harpoon was found embedded in his flesh on the lower part of the bunch before described. But as the stumps of harpoons are frequently found in the dead bodies of captured whales, with the flesh perfectly healed along them, and no prominence of any kind to denote their place, therefore there must have needs been some other unknown reason in the present case fully to account for the ulceration alluded to. But still more curious was the fact of a lance head of stone being found in him. Not far from the buried iron, the flesh perfectly firm about it, who had darted that stone lance, and when, it might have been darted by some Norwest Indian long before America was discovered. But other marvels might have been rummaged out of this monstrous cabinet there in his no telling. But a sudden stop was put to the further discoveries by the ships being unprecedentedly dragged over sideways to the sea, in the body's immensely increasing tendency to sink. However, Starbuck, who was ordering the affair, hung on it to his last, hung on it so resolutely indeed that when, at length, the ship would have been capsized, if still persisting in locking arms with the body, then, when the command was given to clear break from it, such was the immovable strain of the timber heads to which the fluke chains and cables were fastened, that it was impossible to cast them off. Meantime, everything in the Pequod was aslant. To cross to the other side of the deck was like walking up the steep gabled roof of a house. The ship groaned and gasped. Many of the ivory inlayings of the bulwarks and cabins were started from their places by the unnatural dislocation. In vain, hands spiked and crows were brought from bear upon the immovable fluke chains to pry them adrift from the timber heads, and so low had the whale now settled that the submerged ends could not at all be approached, while every moment whole tons of ponderosity seemed added to the sinking bulk, the ship seemed on point of going over. "'Hold on, hold on, won't ye?' cried Stubb to the body. "'Don't be in such a devil of a hurry to sink. "'By thunder, men, we must do everything. "'We must do something or go for it. "'No use prying there of asked, I say, with your handspikes, "'and run of ye for a prayer book and a penknife "'and a cut of big chains.' "'Knife! Aye, aye!' cried Quigquag, and seizing the carpenter's heavy hatchet, he leaned out of a porthole, and steel to iron began slashing the largest fluke chains, but a few strokes, full of sparks, were given, when the exceeding strain affected the rest. With a terrific snap, every fastening went adrift, the ship righted, and the carcass sank. Now this occasional, inevitable sinking of the recently killed sperm whale is a very curious thing, nor has any fisherman yet adequately accounted for it. Usually the dead sperm whale float with great buoyancy, with this side or the belly considerably elevated with its surface. If the only whale that thus sank were old, meager, and broken-hearted creatures, their pads of lard diminished, and all their bones heavy and rheumatic, then you might with some reason assert that this sinking is caused by an uncommon specific gravity in the fish so sinking consequent upon his absence of buoyance in the matter. But it is not so, 
for young whales in their highest health and swelling with noble aspirations, prematurely cut off in the warm flush and may of life, with all their panting lard about them, even these brawny buoyant heroes do sometimes sink. Be it said, however, that the sperm whale is far less liable to do this accident than any other species. Were one that sort go down, twenty right whales do. This difference is that the species is in no doubt immutable in no small degree to the greater quantity of the bones of the right whale of his Venetian blinds, alone sometimes weighing more than a ton. For his encumbrance, the sperm whale is wholly free, but there are instances where, after the lapse of many hours of several days, the sunken whale again rises, more buoyant than in life. But the reason of this is obvious. Gases are generated in him. He swells to prodigious magnitude, becomes a sort of animal balloon. A line of battleships could hardly keep him under then. In the shore whaling on sounding among the bays of New Zealand, when a right whale gives a token sinking, they fasten buoys to him, when plenty of rope, so that when the body has gone down, they know where to look for him when he shall ascend again. It is not long after the sinking of the body that a cry was heard from the Pequod's masthead, announcing that the Jungfrau was again lowering her boats, though the only spout in sight was that of the finback, belonging to the species of uncapturable whales, because of this incredible power of swimming, nonetheless the finback spout is so similar to the sperm whales that by unskillful fishermen it is often mistaken for it. And consequently Derek and all his host were now in valiant chase of this unnearable brute, the virgin crowding all sail, made after her four young keels, and thus they all disappeared far to leeward, still in bold, hopeful chase. Oh, many are the finbacks, and many are the Derricks, my friend. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.